All right, you got a Bible. We're in Judges chapter 3 in an old, old story, an old narrative um, history, really, of God's people, Israel. It is, a, uh, it is a true story about real people, real events, real pain, real trouble, the, the ups and downs, the good days and the bad days of Israel. It should remind us of a couple of things. One is everybody has a story. You have a story. I have one. We all have our history, our good days and our bad days. We have... Uh, the things that we like and dislike about it. And so there's a, uh, I think there's a discipline for the church when it comes to history. And that is we have to force ourselves to think more than just letting the story jog our memories. It has to um, grow our theology because God is doing things. Not just a long time ago with Israel and stories that we find in the scripture. He's doing things in our lives, in your life, even today. And most of us, if we would want to say it, we'd back up from our life and say, well, these are the things I've learned from my life and the story of my life from God. I've learned that God is faithful to rescue sinners who don't deserve it. That's what I learned. I've learned that, uh, that God is faithful to his promises because I've not been faithful and yet he has not quit on me. I've learned that there's something God is doing in my life. He's taking all these particulars of my life and he's using it to shape my life into the image of Jesus Christ and only he can take even the bad and the good and weave it together to produce a good work in my life. And I've learned that about him. I've learned that he is sovereign and that he's close to the brokenhearted and you could just add on and on it goes when it comes to your narrative, your history, Israel's history, teaching you about the theology uh, of who God is and what he does, right? There's a couple benefits to having that lesson and being practical with it. It reminds us all the time that we're never that important in the story. The story, our story, is really about him, not necessarily about us. It's his story. That's the whole point of history. And we're learning that in a really clear way in this Old Testament narrative that God has always been doing something. Things sometimes that we can't perceive or didn't know he was doing, but clearly he's true to form. And that's what we've been learning. And just to remind us where we were last week, we talked about the whole theme of, of, of this book of Judges is that Israel's endless propensity to wander from God, but God's endless pursuit and will not let them go. It's just that constant tension um, going on here that in Israel in their routine would walk away from the Lord. They would hate their life. They would cry out to him and he would send a rescuer, a redeemer, a savior, right? That is, that is the story of, of Judges, 300 years of an ongoing cycle of, of sin and, and rescue. And so we're back in that story, back in that rhythm in chapter 3 where we pick up again a wandering heart of, of man and we'll see it in Israel. Look at chapter 3. And uh, we're going to pick it up, verse 9. This is the first judge that is mentioned, by the way, in, in the text. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, you might, if you're smart, stop and say, well, why, why did God send a rescuer? Well, look at verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Ashtoreth. Baals, Ashtoreth. Uh, moon gods, sun gods, weather gods, fertility gods, sex gods, gods of their culture, gods of their day and their age. Israel decided that they were going to embrace other forms of, I use this term severely loosely, other forms of deity in their mind, okay? And what they got, they didn't anticipate, nor did they want. They got the consequences of their wants. God gave them. In fact, the text says in verse 8 that God sold them. That's the word that the, the writer here uses, sold them into the hand of Cushorishathaim, which is the king of Mesopotamia. And that's not good. 
These kings, as we'll see, these leaders, as we see Israel come in contact with them over the next 20 chapters, they're all bad and getting worse, and they oppress in more horrific ways over and over again. And they were miserable, according to verse 9. And what they did is the same thing you and I do. They thought they would be happier based on their choices. But it turned out to be just the opposite. It always happens. We're no different. We think for a second, a little sin won't hurt anybody. A a little, just a little compromise. One that's culturally acceptable. One that is the norm. One that would never, ever bother anybody after all who's it hurting. Well, you know, you've learned, right? Sin hurts everything. Hurts you. Hurts people you love, clearly. And here's what it produces always. Same rhythm that the Israelites experience. Misery. It never delivers. It it provides a weight and an oppression you can't imagine. And Israel cries out in their misery. And so what we learn from God is that God is moved to pity. And I love this, to self-inflicted pain. Here's the reality of these things we choose, these other gods, even though we wouldn't call them, we couldn't give them names, our versions of happiness, God still is moved to our groaning. He is still moved to the, in, a, in a pity way to our own messes that we make. That's the reality we learn from this. In Israel's case, God does act, and he rises up Othniel to come and rescue them, and Othniel does, and it says here that he crushes this Cushad Rishathaim. He's the king of Mesopotamia who was making their life so miserable, and the text simply says, and Israel had rest. The land had rest. 40 years of rest. In other words, they had 40 years of no oppression, no consequences for their actions, no suffering, and, and peace. Okay, now stop for a second. I, I got to make a point here. Um, something that's obvious in the text, but I want you to notice something that's missing here in Israel's cry. We're going to see it, seems like a hundred times in this 21 chapters, something consistent in what Israel does in their cry of their misery that they perpetrate on themselves, right? Do you see what's missing? Repentance. The text doesn't tell us how they responded other than to say they were in agony, they were miserable, they groaned, they cried. But it never, ever leans into, and they were broken. And they were broken before the Lord. It simply says, we saw this last week, chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, so we know they groaned. And verse 9, the people cried out to the Lord. And that happens over and over again. So let me make a point, okay? There is a big difference between recognizing that you're hurting and repentance. Church, we got to get this, okay? There's something drastically different between us knowing about God and our faith in God that says we trust in Christ and his spirit lives in us. There's a work that he produces in his church called repentance, okay? It's different than perfection. This is people who are sensitive to sin and clean up messes, okay? A lot. And here's what you don't see. At least you don't get, it's not written about in this story about Israel is that they just simply were experiencing the misery of their choices without ever really coming clean, it seems to me, okay? So maybe that explains why for 300 years we have this constant cycle. And Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord until the judge died. And then Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord until the judge died. And then Israel did what was evil. There's an ongoing propensity to this. Now, I hope you know, and I think it's worth asking the question, do you know the difference between misery that you perpetrate on yourself and brokenness from God? 
Do you think you know? Because God cares about that definition because that's what it means to return. That's what it means to repent, to, to about face and go home. That's what it means. So let me show you what I think is the clearest teaching in all of the Bible. I want you to turn to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I have just a minute to briefly mention this. But you should highlight it and circle it because this is God's definition of brokenness. This is what it looks like to understand our sin through his eyes, okay? This is what we respond to, okay? And there are two particular phrases or thoughts in Paul's writing to the church in Corinth that describe the differences of what I'm talking about. There is a phrase called worldly grief or worldly sorrow, and there is godly grief or godly sorrow, now, without much definition or work, you know that what we're talking about in worldly sorrow is the kind that God does not want you to have, and a godly sorrow is one that you should have, okay? Let me read this text, and we'll just point out a couple things. Verse 10, chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation and what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. I don't even have to ask this question or make this observation. Every single person in here has experienced worldly grief. You know when you do what you shouldn't have done and you get caught? the embarrassment of getting caught, the consequence of your actions, the humiliation of that whole thing, the pride, the, the, the total you know, hit to your pride that happens there. You feel sorry for yourselves. You're, you're in the mess, that stuff. Every one of us have had a moment in time where we've done something like that, and we regret it all, but from a different angle. I wish I didn't have to experience the suffering. I'm groaning, I'm crying, i.e., worldly grief. Now let's compare it to the godly sorrow or grief that, that Paul says God gives to his people and it produces a salvation without regret. He, he breaks it down in a really specific way to eight particular characteristics of a, what a, he calls as a godly sorrow. We don't have time to go through all of it, but let me just blast through it and tell me if this sounds like your reaction to your sin when God presses on your heart. Now this is what he says. It says it creates a, an earnestness in us. That's wanting to be righteous. It is you deeply care about about the offense. It's eager to clear yourself. It is, it is the mess that we made and wanting to have our, our, our repentance be obvious to others. It's a righteous anger, an indignation against the sin that has offended and hurt other people, and specifically God. Um, it's a fear. It's a fear of the one who judges sin. It is, it is a longing. You want to restore the relationships with people, God and others, that your sin has hurt. It's a zeal, a concern for God that hates the sin that grieves him. He uses the word punishment here, but it simply means I'm willing to endure whatever it takes to be right. I'm not defending myself. I'm not excusing my behavior. I'm not trying to put myself in a position where it's easier for me. I'll do whatever it takes to make it right. That's the word punishment. And then he ends with prove yourselves innocent. That's an aggressiveness, an aggressiveness to pursue righteousness. That's what it means. I suppose if the Holy Spirit wanted to teach the church about what it means to respond to his work to break us, he couldn't do much better of a job than to describe it like that. Totally different than feeling bad about stupid decisions that make you miserable. This, this person, this kind of sorrow, this godly sorrow, sees sin through the lens of Jesus and God our Father who sees that it's an offense and it leaves me in a bad position and I want it 
right at all costs. That's God's definition of brokenness and repentance. So if you can do this for a second, scroll back in your life and in your memory. Have you ever found yourself just being miserable about sin? I'm about to tell you something you know is always true. Being sorry and miserable isn't enough when it comes to sin. Right? The reality of it is, this text and many, many others are telling the church, turn around and go towards Jesus. That's the essence of the definition, to repent. It's an about-face word, okay? So it isn't enough just go, yeah, it was bad, and I hated it, and I was miserable the whole time. Do you want Christ? Do you want it dealt with? That's, I think, a component missing from this experience with Israel. Obviously, we get to the conclusion eventually that there's a savior for that problem, but nevertheless, it's worth, it's worth noticing. Okay, if you don't understand this, then let this next section remind you. Chapter 3, verse 12. Here's the other story. This is the rinse and repeat part of uh, this rhythm. Verse 12, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What a horrible experience. Now look, look at how they learned this lesson, 13 and 14. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. This is now uh, Eglon, the king of Moab. And he went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms and the people of Israel served the Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now, did you notice the cost to that wandering, worldly, I'm not really gonna repent response from Israel. It's pretty expensive. The the place, the possession of the city of Palms, that's just another phrase for Jericho. Most of you who've read Joshua know the story of Jericho. Every kid that sat in a Sunday school class knows the story of Jericho. Jericho, this is a town, this is a very fortified city that God just told his people, Joshua, get some people and march around the city, blow trumpets and yell, and I'll give you the city. It is probably, I don't know, one of, if not the most important depiction in the Old Testament of God simply favoring and loving his people and doing the battle for them. This is your gift, Jericho. I'm giving it to you. So do something silly like blow trumpets and yell. So no one could mistake it was God's gift to them. Guess what happens? They lose Jericho because they wanted things their way. It says they served the king of Moab, so they lost their freedom. They got bad things going on here based on their own choices, which should remind us that choosing sin is always forfeiting blessing. That's what happens. You choose to go against God, you lose in what God would provide. And I'm not talking money in your pockets. I know there are lots of people who preach another gospel too, but it's not that. We're talking about joy and satisfaction and peace. It's all those things that Jesus promised. And I think we forfeit those things when we literally choose sin. But here's the rhythm again. Israel cries out, look at verse 15. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, that is the strangest introduction ever to a judge, right? Who cares, right? He could putt. I don't know. It's something strange. Um, But I think it's interesting when you can kind of get in this story a little bit. Ehud is what I would call the unpredictable surprising savior. Um, It doesn't really register to us to have the narrator of this story kind of emphasize his left hand. But you have to understand, in in a Hebrew mindset, that wouldn't have been a good designation. 
in the Hebrew mindset, they understood the right hand was everything. God swears by his right hand. His pleasures are in his right hand forevermore. He, his chosen ones sit at his right hand. Right hand is a symbol of strength and the symbol of power. You fought by your right hand. For the narrator say, and he was a left-handed man. It was almost as if he is saying, because he didn't have another hand to fight with. Which most commentators, most writers say that's probably true. He was possibly handicapped and couldn't use his right hand. So the only thing they could say was, and he was a committed left-hander. So that's unbelievable to me. Um, here's how the story unfolds. Ehud is set with a, a, a contingency of people to pay a tribute to Eglon the king, and so he does. But before he does, he fashions a double-edged sword, and he straps it to his right leg, and he marches off to the palace, and he meets with Eglon, and they offer him the gift, and they leave. All good so far. Well, as they leave, they head back out of town, and they get near a place called Gilgal, a place where idols are set up, and Ehud just simply says to the people with him, just keep on going, I'm, I'm going back. And he turns around and heads back to the throne room, and this is what happens. Look at verses 19 through 23 and tell me this isn't strange. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. So this is what's going on. He's in the presence of the king. He tells all his, his court to be quiet, and he, all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt was also, also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of the belly. And dung came out. Isn't this awesome? <laughs> Verse 17 told us that Eglon was a very fat man. So just picture this very robust, fat, arrogant king who got fat on the backs of these people by oppressing them. And here is this crippled, nobody cares. This guy's no threat whatsoever, left-hander, who takes out a sword to be the judge for God's people. And he thrusts this thing in, and bad things happen, okay? I think it's interesting going on reading the story. The attendants, obviously, he had ran out. He locked the door. The attendants were knocking, wanting to get to the king, and they concluded, well, he's clearly going to the bathroom, right? You could smell it. And so they left it, they left time, enough time for Ehud to get away and to rally the troops of Israel to go to war against their, his armies. That's exactly what happens, all right? Ehud becomes Israel's leader, according to verse 27. He becomes the deliverer in verses 28 and 29. He killed 10,000 people, this awkward, nobody cares, left-handed, particular kind of savior. Now, if you go back to last week, I don't know if you were here, but I made a point to, to kind of give you lens to see an Old Testament narrative that how it always reveals us, always reveals God. Well, there is a unique comparison going on here with Ehud that points to a very unexpected left-hander, probably the most unexpected left-hander in human history. This is how the prophet Isaiah talked about this unexpected left-hander. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Picture Jesus, the ultimate left hand. 
in his weakness, he wins a victory for his people. No one saw Jesus coming to be small. No one predicted this king to take on the role of a servant and strap an apron up and care for people that didn't care for him. No one saw this kind of savior, this kind of redeemer king. No one saw that. He's the ultimate surprise in the entirety of human history. Jesus won that on the behalf of us. Well, if he's a good illustration of Jesus, then he's a good illustration for us as well because here's the reality we've learned in our own story and in obviously the scriptures in total tell us that God came for outsiders. That's, that's all of us, right? In fact, no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, you're not beyond the reach of God, not beyond the reach of his salvation or his, his, his love. He responds to people based on grace, and he loves and uses people who are marginalized. And by, and by the way, he does it to show that his affections for us have nothing to do with performance. There, there is every other religion in the world that has an entirely different agenda. Fix it. Clean it up. Climb the ladder, be good enough. Only Orthodox Christianity says the obvious, we can't. We are like Israel. I do evil in the sight of the Lord. Who is going to be the judge of me? And God provides the perfect judge, this surprising judge, this humble judge who comes in meekness and weakness and dies in our place to provide for us a righteousness not of our own, so that we can stand in his strength before the Father. The obvious conclusion, too, is that the reason why he does that, the reason why he comes for those who are marginalized, is because in reality, there aren't any other kind. We're all left-handers when it comes to sin, right? No one merits his favor. Nobody's good enough. He gives it to those who admit their need. So... Israel's peace lasts for a little while, but here we go again. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We're calling it the cycle of sin, whatever you want to call it. It's just a repeat again. 1 through 3, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he had died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for, for 20 years. Here's the cycle of sin. We mentioned it last week. I'm going to repeat it again and again and again. They did what they wanted to do. Here's what the text said in chapter 2, verses 17. This sounds really bad, but this is in the scriptures. They whored after other gods. They lusted after other options. That's what they did. The end of the book, the end of the very last chapter, last verse says that there was no king in Israel and every di everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they wanted to do. Isn't that the depiction of sin ultimately? You're doing what you want to do all the time, what you want to do. And here's the conclusion. It's true here, but it's also true in our own life. They were miserable. They were oppressed by a brutal king and they cried out. Here we go again. I don't like what my decisions have done. I don't like what they've produced in me. I am miserable. So what does God do? He raises up again a savior, but this time kind of a trifecta of a savior. He raises up a judge, a warrior, and a housewife, believe it or not, to deliver his people. 
And I want you to see this story. You've probably heard of this judge, Deborah. Um, according to the text, it simply says that Deborah was a prophetess and a judge. But I want you to notice that she's not a king. In other words, she's not a warrior. In fact, of all the rescuers, redeemers of Israel, she's the only one that can't fight, doesn't fight, won't fight, because she's not called to that role. She's a judge and a prophetess, okay? But God does provide a warrior. His name is Barak. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. This is Deborah talking to Barak, and she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men of Mount, Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Is there anything confusing about this section? It seems to me like Deborah calls Barak out on disobedience, doesn't it? Like, she calls Barak and she says, didn't God tell you already that you were supposed to go and win this? Didn't God tell you to go fight and I will give you the victory? Isn't that what happened? And this is his response. Sounds like a, a reluctant leader to me, verse 8 and 9. And Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I will not go, but if you go with me, I will go. I'm not certain I trust this promise. I'm not certain I could go and have this victory, but you're the prophetess and you're the judge, and if you go, I'll feel at least the confidence to, to go too. And so, so Deborah does, and she goes with Barak and fights against Sisera, Javan's general. And Sisera does something really extreme. He calls out 900 iron chariots <clears throat> to fight against Israel. Israel fighting against Sisera's chariots is like throwing rocks at tanks, okay? That's how you have to picture this. This is absurd. Nobody wins that fight but Sisera. But look at the story, 14 and 15. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now stop. That's all it says here in chapter 4 about the victory. There's so much missing in here. Like, how do they do it? Like, was there some kind of superhuman, like, cloaking device? What was going on that allowed them to defeat the chariots? Well, you have to read it. We're not going to do it today. But in chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah, Deborah tells us how the war was won. A torrent, a rainstorm. God sent a flood in this valley of Kishon, and it stopped the chariots dead cold. They couldn't move. A chariot that can't move is an anchor, Okay? And so all they did was come down to the hills. Israel came out of the hills, pulled their sabers, and went to work on guys who couldn't fight without chariots. 10,000 of them died. Sisera takes off running. The general, he wants to stay alive. And he runs off. And here's what happens. Let me pick it up in 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was, a, there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hezer and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with, with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if a man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say, no. 
This is the housewife, Jael. I don't know anything else about her. She's just managing her own little, her little world there. She's the wife of Heber. Heber is an interesting name. It means ally. Uh, in verse 11, it seems to imply that Heber at one time was allies with Israel. And, and now he's allies with Jabin the king. Something happened. I don't know if it is because he's from the tribe of metal workers. Did he come down south and decide to build chariots of iron? Maybe that was a side job. Drew allegiance is there. Either way, I don't know. But Jabin didn't change her loyalties. Jabin was still loyal to Israel. So when Sisera goes running off for his life, she says, come on over here. And she does what every good mother would do. She gives him more milk and tucks him into bed. Here, just, I'll give you rest and have some, instead of water, I'll give you milk. You don't think he just went out cold, big day of war? And as soon as, as soon as he's asleep, it gets really good. Look at this. Uh, we'll pick it up. Where am I at? Sorry. 20? Okay, 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg ooh, and took a hammer in her hand, and when she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep. And the narrator helps us and says, so he died. <laughs> You can look at stories like this and go, That's, what is that doing here? Like, how does that help anybody? Th- this story, it, it's so interesting to me how God delivers his people. This, this, many writers would say that part of a wife's duty in that day was to set up tents whenever the family would travel. And so part of their household appliances was a mallet and a tent peg. She probably had Popeye forearms from putting up tents. But she used her motherly skill to lure him to sleep and to tuck him in, and then, bam, okay? Interesting to me that uh, the reality of Scripture all throughout is that God opposes the proud. And, and here is Sisera, who is humbled in the most unbelievable way. To die by the hand of a woman is is beyond description to this culture. And this is exactly what God did. If you go back to verse nine of chapter four, I don't want you to turn there, but remember when Deborah is pronouncing what God was calling Barak to do and Barak's reluctance to go and honor that call unless she would go with him. She said, okay, I'll come with you, but if I come with you, just know this, that there's an honor going to someone other than you. The honor's going to a woman. Now you read that story and you think, she's talking about herself. She's talking about Deborah. She's talking about jail. Jail's the one who ultimately defeated the general with this tent peg strategy. Um, it's interesting to me also as well is that there is really a disappointment for those who won't heartedly, wholeheartedly follow the Lord. Here is Barak, my assumption, feeling pretty good about himself, routed 10,000, Deborah went with him, he pulls out his sword, he's chasing Sisera, he ends up at the tent ready to finish the job as far as he's concerned. She beat him to the punch, Right? Like, I could just imagine Barrett going, man, I wanted, to, I wanted the songs to be about me. I wanted people to remember me, how I finished, and yet because of my reluctance, because I wouldn't believe, because I needed Deborah, jail. All we know of her is she's a housewife. She obeyed God. The text goes on to tell us that Jabin and the king of Canaan was destroyed. And it doesn't do what it does in almost every other text that we read. It doesn't immediately say there was rest in Israel right away. 
it waits till the end of chapter 5 to say that there was rest in the land for 40 years. And here's why. Because chapter 5 is a song that Deborah and Barak wrote. And here's the song. Here's what it is. It's what we do when we sing. It is the history of God on display in this moment. They sing the song of what God has done, okay? And at the end of that, they say, and then God gave peace. Over and over again is the story of God, how God is delivered. It's the recognition that it is God's war, and guess what? God won. Just like he always wins, like he always does, and there's blessing and joy in him. I think there's some maybe some takeaways, some observations that we can make from this text. If there's a, a way to see the consistency of our hearts in the story of Israel or the consistency of God and how he works with mankind, let me draw out a couple things to have us consider this morning. Um, how about this? People who turn away from God don't ever think they're in trouble. People who turn away from God don't ever think they're in trouble. Now, I'm, I mean this personally and corporately. So let's just leave it to our own personal lives, right? We don't ever make this decision one day to wake up and say, I'm turning from Jesus, today's the day. It was on my calendar of things to do, and I'm leaving Jesus today, and I'm going to do my own thing, make myself happy. Nobody makes that decision. It is this slow, subtle thing that we add to our life. And the reality of it is that becoming worldly, like Israel had a tendency to do, isn't something that we perceive to be dangerous. It's never perceived to be that. So let's talk about you individually. It's so, so subtle and so sneaky, the things we add, but isn't it also true corporately? I mean, you can't, you can't help but look at our world and say, man, we are in some deep trouble. Our culture has said, no, no to truth, no to absolutes, no to God, no to sin. It's just whatever you want. If there's a phrase or a sentence that describes our world, there was no king in the world and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, wouldn't that fit? Of course it would. I don't know where you land on issues, and that's not my point. But if there is misery, and I think there is, I think people are always groaning. I think now more than ever, there's violence here and there's racial tension there and there's terrorism here and there's this and there's that and there's this and there's that and everything just looks so whacked out of its mind is because we wanted it. God simply says you want it. There you go. If we can move away from the big story um, of our culture doing what's right in our own eyes, is it also true how sneaky it is for us to become worldly. So it's so easy, right? So easy to love what the world loves, to do what the world does, to worry how the world worries, to value what the world values. It's so easy because after all, we're kind of saturated in it. It's the way it is. We, we end up looking more like them than a biblical description of what it means to follow Christ. It's, it's really, really subtle. And here's why I think it's also very sneaky, because nobody in here, when we get that way or go that direction towards worldliness, nobody makes a decision of apostasy. I don't think Israel woke up one day and said, today we're not following Yahweh. Starts now. I think Israel just simply warmed up to it. It's the proverbial frog in hot water scenario. 
they didn't wake up to serve foreign gods. They just warmed up to it. You remember where Israel came from, Egypt, right? 400 years. They were brick makers. I don't know what they felt. We don't have a description of how they responded to getting their own land, but I imagine there's, as much as there was joy, there was a little bit of maybe some questions. Like, we've only made bricks. They, they plant farms and they herd animals and they do other things and we're not certain. We know that stuff. And how do they do what they do? Well, they've got a God for rain and a God for sun and they've got a God for this and a God for that and a protection for this. And perfect. My guess is Israel just simply said, if in Rome, right, a little insurance, Yahweh, but if we put up a statue, that might be okay. And that's totally classic us. I want Jesus. I love Jesus, yes. But I have also written a different definition of happiness, a different one of joy, and it includes something in addition to. And there you go. It's subtle. And it sneaks up on a people that call themselves believers, and it clearly has crippled a world. Something else. Something else. And then you can justify anything. I think there's something else that we could take away from a story like this. You've got to hang on to this one. The only thing you and I ever contribute to our rescue is our crying out. You could make the mistake that, man, I'm feeling conviction, like I've kind of slid over to the world and I'm doing other things I shouldn't do. And you might buy into religion's versions of how to take care of that. Make yourself acceptable. Clean up your act. Make yourself presentable. Make yourself good enough for God to notice you and say, okay, you, you fit. That would be a lie. Because the reality of our hearts, the reality of the sinful condition of man is that no one, no one can make themselves acceptable to a holy God. There isn't a version of man-made righteousness that merits his standard of holiness. Nothing works. You and I are bankrupt when it comes to what God requires, so we need help, and the help is Jesus, right? You, you and I um, only contribute this, God, I screwed it up, and I have this wayward heart and I find satisfaction for brief moments and the wrong things, and I suffer the misery from my decisions, and I don't want any of that stuff. Focus me, help me, rescue me. That, that helps some of you if you feel like what you've done is so dark and so deep that God couldn't find you, or it might readjust some of you who think that your life is so impressive that God, you don't need him. Either way, let's lower this thing to a more realistic place. Everyone's a sinner. Separated from God by our sin, we need a Savior to be the Redeemer, to be the better judge for us. Amen? So, which is ironic because that's my last point. Israel had this rhythm. Judge, they had peace. As soon as the judge died, they went crazy. Everyone did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's what we need. If there's a takeaway from this at all, here's what we need. God's people need a judge who won't die. If what brought them their peace and their stability and their consistency and their joy was a judge, and as soon as he died, they went back into the same hole, we need, church, we need a judge who won't die. This is how Paul talks about it in Romans 6. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Amen? Jesus came, died, and rose again. And his life, his power in his life is available to his children. And we can repent a lot. 
And we can love a lot and care about the things he cares about and push back against all the influences that would like to shove Jesus right out of our hearts. We can do it based on his work in us, right? This permanent salvation and rest in the leadership of God's ultimate judge. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Christ, our Savior. I thank you that stories like this really do help us see our need for him. I pray today, God, that you would help us examine our hearts when we leave about how truly um, we respond to our sin. Are we miserable or are we broken? God, I know that your spirit does that work, so I pray that he does it in your church. I pray that your church can look and act and live differently in this world that doesn't know you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.